welcome to episode eight of Adventures in Advising with me, Colm Cronin. Hey, greetings and salutations. This is Matt Mark and happy April. Indeed, into into April, Matt. And how are you doing? How are things in California? Well, it seems we have more restrictions going on. Um, now we're wearing uh, required to wear masks, um, at least in some of the counties. So in Riverside County, where I live, uh, we are required to wear masks. And apparently in LA, the Los Angeles mayor did a conference and said if people report others that are not following the restrictions, then they might get some sort of reward. So he actually said, snitches get rewards. And he wanted to thank people that would tell on others. Okay, that's um, certainly an interesting approach. Um, not too sure. I have to read more about that. But I just uh, woke up reading that and I was like, hmm, that's interesting. But yeah, the, the big news is that a lot of the counties, I think it's recommended from our governor that we wear masks. But for some of the counties so like Riverside, San Diego, we're required to if we're out in public. Um that's that's interesting i think we we haven't yet had that we we still have quite uh, intense restrictions around people going out but we are i suppose beginning to see a little bit around hopefully a, a flattening of the curve here in in ireland it's been a a week where we have seen an increase in the number of deaths um but we we have seen the curve maybe begin to to flatten and the hope is that the restrictions are working but we we are nowhere in terms of knowing whether we're kind of anywhere near the peak as yet so we will find out this week in terms of restrictions and whether they will continue I think we're also getting to a point where we'll probably find out in relation to our big state exams for students as to whether they're going to go ahead and that will be the deciding factor on when you know the next academic year I suppose takes place because um, if those exams get get pushed out then it might mean that the start of the academic year also does or maybe they they find an alternative assessment method and we we may start on time it, it's still in flux and um nobody is is sure as yet so i think there's a lot of scenario planning going on in, at university level over here and at the sectoral level to try and figure out what the different responses are going to be um, but I, I think your students are back in taking classes again. Is that correct? Yeah. So we're on the quarter system. So our quarter for spring quarter got pushed back a, a week. So most classes actually start um, on April 6th. So when this gets posted, but actually some classes that were already planned to be online already, those might have already started last week. So students had to make sure they were checking with their instructors and checking their email to ensure that what class they had and if it was starting last week or if it starts this week. But our winter quarter ended a couple of weeks ago. So most of last week, I was reviewing grades for, for my students for the winter quarter and then um, then sent out emails to schedule appointments. So last this actually last Thursday and Friday, I was booked solid with with Zoom appointments. And so now our appointments are, are online. And I was telling my boss Friday night, 
that I felt I was more tired doing Zoom appointments than in person. And then he kind of felt the same way. And so we we're talking about like, well, what could be the reasons why? And so we were thinking that a lot of times like when we have in-person appointments, like, well, we have to get up out of our chair to greet our students in the lobby. And at the end, we walk them out. And then in between appointments, we might have to, you know, talk to our colleague or drop something off to someone else or go go to another office or walk to another office. So we're, we're always having some type of movement throughout the day. But like at home, I'm at my home desk setting, waiting for the next appointment to enter the, like the waiting room in Zoom. So like I find myself setting for longer periods of time than I would in in-person appointments. And then my boss and I feel that we were spending more time making sure during the appointment, like we were taking the whole like 30 minutes for the appointment to ensure that the students had a good understanding of what online meant and what that meant for the quarter, as well as making sure that their needs are being met. And, you know, three things that I was asking my students when, anytime I, I started the appointment was, well, how are you doing right now? Like we can talk about why you're, why you had this appointment and, you know, maybe why your grades were where they were last quarter. Cause I work with a lot of students on academic probation, but let's start this off with like, how are you doing right now? And have your instructors contacted you or posted on blackboard of, how their class is going to be run, but then also make sure that you're patient with your instructors because some of them may have never taught online. So this is all new for everyone. And if we work together, we really will, we can, we can get through this. So, you know, utilizing all the time that we have for that appointment, but it almost seems like for the most part, almost every student I've met with virtually seems okay right now. And that's also partly because classes haven't officially started for most of them. Um, so we'll, I guess we'll see in the next few weeks or throughout this quarter how things will go. But I think they're adapting the best they can. And what I mean is, like, I had one student who was using her dad's iPad to Zoom for the appointment. I had another student whose, like, only quiet place to Zoom was in her car because she has, you know, she was saying she has a lot of uh, siblings and so like noise level wise, like she's like, I have to go somewhere else. So she was like literally in her car with her with her laptop. And uh, my colleague was telling me that he had a student who drove to campus uh, to use the Wi-Fi in the parking lot because our IT department expanded the Wi-Fi range. So it actually expands out into certain parking lots on, on our campus. So some students actually are going to campus in the parking lot on their laptops or iPad or phone to do to, to do their appointment so that's really interesting i think on a number of levels and the the fact that students are you know going to campus and it probably raises some kind of you know equity issues around you know the the move towards remote learning online learning and that is something that that's come up certainly here in ireland and at this point students wouldn't even have the option of of being able to to go to to campus to to drive because we have restrictions on going further than two kilometers from your house so I think mm -hmm. you you've raised uh, some really interesting um kind of issues there that that maybe the higher ed sector is going to have to wrestle and grasp with um and really think about how things are done um it sounds like that you and, and your colleagues are putting as much effort as you possibly can and, and into helping the students to manage that transition and that's probably an area that's helping them to to adapt and one of the reasons why you're probably more tired than you you had been previously and i think that 
you know, from talking to colleagues across the sector, it seems like there is an enormous effort being made by people, by advisors, by um, personnel across the universities to really try as much as they possibly can to ease the transition for students. Because it, it is, I mean, transitions are, are challenging. They can be difficult, um, and especially at a time which is already stressful. So um, it I, and certainly from talking to, to students and we will have an, an interview with a student later in the episode, the feedback from them has been that staff and academics have been really helpful uh, at this time. So they certainly uh, appreciate it, I think. Oh, yeah. And and it's I think as long as everyone knows that we're we're all trying to get through this and trying to make sure that we're meeting the needs of, of everyone, like even our services to students with disabilities office, like some of their students they have they have to offer certain accommodations to and now it's like well how do I adapt when I have like I'm supposed to have a note taker in a class for a student but now everything's online how is that going to work so you know a lot of it they're they're still working out and and one students I met with um, they were saying now you know yeah a lot of the resources or a lot of departments that they've been in contact with you know even if they didn't know the answer they said you know hang tight we're all trying to figure it out but we're going to make sure we let you know and for us in a lot of departments, it's, you know, making sure our websites are updated with, with the most up-to-date information, how our offices are going to be run, how to contact us, and then making sure that we're we're checking our messages, that we're checking our email, that we're um, notifying students that um, we're in constant communication with them. And I think a lot of them, you know, a lot of times we, we hear, well, students don't check their emails. I think right now a lot of them are, you know, because that's pretty much the the main mode of, of communication that that we're having with them. And then speaking of emails, like like these, it was it was kind of odd because like the last two weeks, like I hardly had any emails from students, and um, and I think most of them were really focused on just getting their finals done. But like the last few days, like now I'm feeling it. So like um, we were supposed to re- actually record this uh, yesterday uh, on a Saturday, but I had to reschedule to record today on Sunday. Cause like I woke up yesterday and I had like this vibe or like pressure to check my school email. And then there, like I looked at it and I found like multiple emails from students, like worried about reaching their instructors, wondering why like some of their classes weren't showing up on Blackboard, why their financially hadn't been dispersed, like what math classes to take. So it was like this wide range of, of, of different um, scenarios. So that's why I was like, uh, Hey, can we record tomorrow? Cause I don't think I'm going to have time today. But um, I think right now, you know, people talk about the new normal, things like that. And it's it's like it. I think right now like for us, because our term is just going to be starting and like there's going to be a little bit of rush. Um, but, you know, hopefully as you know, the weeks kind of go by, it slows down a little bit and then we can kind of refocus and figure out what's going to happen now with orientation or summer or how fall is going to go. So um, definitely have a lot of planning to do. But we're also right now just trying to get through the, the here and now. Absolutely. And you can hear the the level of commitment that, that, you know, advisors have and that you have and, you know, you're waking up on a Saturday and, and checking your email and recognizing the needs of the students. But what are you, what are you doing to, to take care of yourself, Matt? Are you, are, what, what's been going on outside of your professional and uh, the academic world? Are, are there, are there things have you, have you found ways to enjoy or distract yourself and you know make some free time for yourself so i have so last week we were talking about uh, you're mentioning tiger king on netflix and uh, netflix does not sponsor this show so whatever we say is just our opinions but i 
did take you up on that offer and watched it. And oh my goodness, that was a interesting, interesting show. And if you have not watched it, a uh, spoiler alert. So either pause the podcast, go watch it, and then come back, or fast forward a little bit. But Tiger King is like, you know, they say it's this quote unquote docuseries about private Tiger Zoo owner, what Joe Maldonado Passage, or as he's uh, famously known as now, Joe Exotic. And it follows him and his fellow private zoo owners and Joe's role in this murder for hire plot uh, to kill Carol Baskin. Uh, the hello there cool cats and kittens uh, who's a tiger activist and I, I i don't know like i couldn't stop watching like every episode ended on a cliffhanger so like was i entertained yes did i keep did it keep me on the edge of my seat yes did it run like a shoddy reality show absolutely was it supposed to probably but that's how like sh- most shows are including these this docuseries like it's so sensationalized and i think that was one of the issues i might have had with it was that like these individuals in a sense are becoming celebrities but some of them are very vindictive and backstabbing and semi to full-on evil when they're you know interacting with each other or like the tigers are supposed to be taken care of oh absolutely i think there are some serious questions about a number of people on the show and you know the welfare of the animals it didn't appear that anyone you know certainly any of the owners of the the zoos or sanctuaries had any interest in tigers in the wild or you know the the animals you know in their actual natural habitat it seemed like you know possessing these creatures and and making money off them or you know using them to garner fame or to be seen to be doing the right thing was certainly more of an interest than the the welfare of the animals themselves yeah i guess yeah if you're running for president and then governor and then apparently using money from the zoo to pay for that i mean like one episode like we were made to think carol baskin is like the sweet innocent activist who's like you know maybe a little cuckoo for the lack of better term but like the next episode, it's like, nope, just kidding. Carol may have killed her ex-husband and fed him to her tigers. And so like most of the episodes, you're made to to have some sort of sympathy in a way, I guess, for Joe. But then like the end of the last episode, it's like, nope, bombshell. He might have shot some of his tigers, by the way. Absolutely. I, I thought the right at the end and you see him with the two tiger cubs and he looks at them and he's like, that's $5,000 a piece. And wow, I mean, that really kind of, you know, stuck with me at the end that we'd gone on this roller coaster ride and kind of left at the end going for this guy. But the the it certainly captured the public imagination over here um, on WhatsApp. Um, there are so many memes um, being sent back and forth and uh there is apparently another episode going to be out um, next week or or so the the talk is. So it looks like, you know, the the world is um, enraptured by Tiger King. Yeah. And as much as I may have had like the negative side of talking about it, um, I probably will watch that episode when it comes out. <laughs> 
Well, for for anyone who any listeners who who aren't familiar with Matt uh, on and his social media, Matt has had some amazing um, Tiger Tiger King material, um, and uh, he you 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 are an just just so creative and so brilliant at, at putting stuff together so um i have definitely um had some uh enjoyment out of uh the material you have created inspired by tiger king oh it's, it's nice of you to say that but i essentially was copying other people so uh someone by the name of chris jericho had it posted on his or um or not, i don't think he had it posted but someone did a meme and took his face and put it on Joe Exotic with the tiger. So I was like, oh, let me see if I could do that. And so I have like this Photoshop app on my my phone. So I was like, let me see if I can find a picture of me and then put my face on there. So I saw it and I was like, this looks cool. I don't like Joe Exotic as a person, but let me just use this and, and post it. Well, it certainly came out really well. So whatever inspired it, um, kudos, kudos to you. So I'm glad that, uh, you know, there has been life outside of um, the, the professional world. Um, but we we do have some really, really interesting interviews coming up in this episode. And the first of those is an interview that we conducted way back in February, I think, Matt. Is that right? Yeah, so it was in February with with David R. Smith from from Penn State. And so the intention was, let's record this this interview and then we would be posting it in March at like early middle March. And then, of course, everything with COVID-19 and how that was impacting campuses and then working remotely or we not working remotely, how what's going to happen with their students. Like it just became something where it's like, okay, we can't really post this interview right now because we have other things um, that are kind of going on right now that we, we need to discuss. So it was nice enough for David where he was totally understandable with like, hey, we know we wanted to talk with you and we had this interview, but we can't post it yet is it okay if we push it a little bit um, and then we find a, a, a better time to, to, to get this um, on an episode? And, you know, he was wonderful about it. And, and, and thanks to him for, for all of that. Absolutely. We, we appreciate his understanding. It really is an interview that I'm, I'm glad that we, we had the opportunity to speak with him because he offers some kind of really interesting insights. And even though we weren't talking specifically about COVID-19, he talks a lot about change management in the interview. And I suppose a lot of what he he is talking about may be relevant uh, in, in many respects to the situation we, we find ourselves in now. So probably without further ado, we should uh, go into the interview and uh, hear from David himself. All right, our next guest is David R. Smith. David assumed the role of Associate Dean for Advising and Executive Director of the Division of Undergraduate Studies at Penn State in September 2013. Prior to accepting this position, David worked for more than 15 years in the Office of Student Academic Affairs at the University of Michigan. In the capacity of Associate Dean for Advising and Executive Director, David was responsible for overseeing one of the largest enrollment units for first and second year students. This includes providing leadership for enhancing the delivery of academic advising across the more than 20 campuses 
branches of the Pennsylvania State University. He also represents DUS within the Administrative Council for Undergraduate Education, a collaborative council representing all colleges, enrollment units, and campuses at Penn State. Additionally, he holds a seat as a senator in the University Faculty Senate, provides leadership on the implementation of a student success strategy, and is a former member of Commission uh, for Adult Learners. At Penn State, David's primary focus has been to advance the quality of the undergraduate experience and to focus attention on institutional responsibilities for student success. David, welcome to Adventures in Advising. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing well. It's uh, good good to be here, and I appreciate the two of you doing this and sort of reaching out to the advising community and sort of giving us an opportunity to talk about the work that we're doing. I, th I think that's important, and I appreciate it. Well, thank you for taking the opportunity. It's uh, it's an interesting one because um, how I really appreciate you. You got a. I guess uh, in a contact from me, and I, I don't think you knew me from Adam, and it was actually a, a former colleague of mine at University College Dublin, Beth, who who worked at Penn State, and she saw we were doing a podcast. She said, "Oh, you got to talk to the guys at Penn State," and so I said, "Sure, who should I contact?" And she gave me your name. You, I. I basically cold called you, and uh, you very generously agreed to uh, appear on the podcast with us. Yeah. You know, Beth is a good person. We worked closely together while she was here at Penn State, you know, and it, I think underscores the fact that, um, you know, colleagues are important and, and um, how we value one another and support one another and, you know, build a community of practitioners that are um, really trying to support students. Um, so absolutely. When the call came, I was happy to, to respond. Thank you. Yeah, it, it does. It highlights that it's uh, certainly a small world and uh, an even smaller academic world and the interconnectedness, I think, of all of us. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure we're all, you know, facing similar sorts of student situations and scenarios. And, um, you know, I think we're all sort of probably at different places on a, a continuum of trying to find solutions that are that are going to work. Um, and so I think the more we can talk and collaborate across institutional lines, the, the better we're going to just advance higher education as a whole. Yeah, it almost seems that um, in a lot of conversations or anything when institutions get brought up, Penn State's usually one of those institutions. And Penn State is in the top 1% of universities worldwide. It's the largest alumni network in the nation. It has the highest rating for research universities. <laughs> so you're always continuing to improve and innovate. Now, one of the things yeah. Penn State has uh, right now going on is uh, One Penn State 2025. Can you talk a little bit about that, like when that started and how that's created a transformational experience for students. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for surefire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with the admissions game wherever you podcast. Sure. Um, so over the last handful of years, five years or so, the, the provost, uh, Nicholas Jones, has really been working hard to move forward um, a very positive uh, strategic planning initiative 
um, one where people are sort of actively um, seeing themselves as part of the efforts that actually advance and, and get us closer to the goals of, of that strategic plan. So I think his willingness to listen to ideas has been quite uh, pronounced. Um, we there are a few folks that brought forward an idea of one Penn State 2025, right? So where do we want to be in, in 2025? Um, how do we get to a place where we're stronger, we're better, we're working more deliberately towards uh, supporting students? Um, you can imagine a large place that has about 100,000 students, um, that has 20-plus campuses, um, that the ability to have a seamless environment, right, where the curriculum is one, where the set of policies is, is one, is, is difficult, right? How do you make the place really work um, together um, when there are very different realities, right? So campuses look different than from one another, but we have one set of policies and procedures. So a lot of this is really how do we lower some of our mechanisms that we use as an institution just to make ourselves work, right, our administrative processes, and make those less of a barrier for students, right? The student really shouldn't see or have to understand why we're administratively organized this way as opposed to any other way, and it should be a, you know, information should be more transparent, um, pathways should be more transparent to students, and so there are four or five principles that, that are really being looked at to, to try to um, create some of those um, better experiences or improve the experiences for our students overall, our faculty and staff for that matter as well. I mean, it's really a comprehensive attempt to revisit where we're at and how we're organized and how we ins better ensure the outcomes that, that we ultimately want for students. I that. I mean, our listeners won't be able to to see, but uh, my my head was nearly falling off there from nodding because there's so much in in what you're trying to achieve that's going to make a huge impact on the, on the student experience and really better the student experience. And I know that that's one of your main focuses. So maybe uh, could you talk us through the practicalities or or like a day to day. Um, what it is that you're trying to do in terms of improving that that student experience? I think there's a lot of things that that we're trying to do day to day. Um, you know, my role at the university is one that takes me to a lot of meetings, a lot of conversations um, uh, around these kinds of of these topics, right? And so, part of my role, I think, is to try to influence conversations in a way that we keep them focused on the student experience, right? There's, there's many pieces to the puzzle, uh, many aspects of how you make a, a university work, and people or, or different areas of the university have different advocates, right? So we have to always be thinking about the different constituents that are part of a university. I really try to keep a lot of those conversations coming back to the student and particularly the undergraduate student experience that that's been i think really the central part of my time my career in higher education is to really focus on what are the kinds of experiences that students are having how do we continuously sort of keep that on the table as we think about the changes that we're making um so this could involve um work in a committee where we might be talking about um how do we ensure that we have 
better capacity to really provide advising to students, right? So right now, one of the things that I've been involved with are some conversations in various committees of our faculty senate. And at Penn State, shared governance is a real vital part of the of the health of the institution. So faculty are part of the shared governance. And, and so really any student-facing policy has to be passed through our faculty senate. And, and so it's been in that space that I've really, in some critical ways, have been trying to um, elevate that conversation around some of the policies that we as an institution should be changing in order to be a better place for, for our students. Um, so, you know, that's part of it. Um, the, Matt mentioned the Administrative Council for Undergraduate Education when he introduced me. That's the body that sort of looks then at policies that have been passed and how do you then implement those, right? What are the procedures by which all of our units are going to follow in order to ensure that our policies are evenly and um, evenly put into place across this large university that spans the entire Commonwealth of, of Pennsylvania? Um, so they're really trying to take uh, an active effort to sort of help people think about what are the actual procedural steps, right? How do you... How do you ensure that um, a new policy, say, around grade forgiveness can be evenly applied, that our advisors will eventually understand what you can do and can't do, why we passed it, right? What's the context for, for a policy like that? Um, so that, and then, you know, I lead a large unit of, of academic advisors. So really trying to be present for them, talking about what we're trying to achieve as an institution to listen to them, right? I think that's the other unique thing about academic advising is that the number of students that advisors see is really significant, right? And particularly at the Division of Undergraduate Studies, where we see students that are headed to all of the colleges and programs of the university, we get, begin to get a really broader perspective of where sort of the hurdles lie, right? Um, what are the continuing challenges that students face? And, and I think the advantage for me then is that I have a staff and I'm willing to listen to what they're seeing and experiencing through their conversations with students. And then I have sort of access or the ability to bring some of that information into conversations where policy might be um, examined or our procedures are being critiqued, right? So that I think is really the important part of um, advising for, or one of the important things for advising at institutions is that, again, it's it's that ability to filter things upwards, right? So we have the exposure to students. And so that allows for that experience to filter up and, and really get into higher levels of, of our administration, which are far removed from the day-to-day -day experiences often of, of, of students. Yeah, and it's great that you mentioned that because, you know, sometimes at conferences, we'll hear from, let's say, other advisors that may feel that administration doesn't know what we do or, you know, seems to be out of reach for, for students or for, you know, staff and faculty at the campus. But it seems like what, in your role, you're kind of connected to a lot of different areas to make sure that there's that communication flow and um, you can hopefully make decisions and make changes based off what the needs are. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business 
or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, absolutely, Matt. I mean, that, that's, I think any institution, um, how it's organized has a really big effect then on what voice, say, advisors or other constituents within that organization have at um, the, the um, change level, right? Um, and so, you know, it, it's not by any means perfect, right? There's, there's still a lot of constituents that have to be brought to the table. And, and again, because Penn State is such a large place, what might be best for any one location may not be good for others. So, you know, we're constantly working towards a consensus on policies and procedures, um, you know, and, and so that, that can be hard because some may think that what's being implemented isn't hearing what's occurring at one particular location. But, you know, I think there is a real concerted effort to, to work as a whole. There's structures for collaboration, um, and, and the important part is how do we hear the experiences of our staff and our students and use that knowledge to affect uh, change that's really going to move us in the direction that, that is needed and, and um, practical based on what people are actually seeing, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it, this is interesting for anyone who has listened to our podcast before because I definitely see similarities in terms of what you're doing at Penn State and what Brett McFarlane is trying to do with NACADA in terms of to really um, not not just on maybe um, the, the, the ground level but at an institutional level to change that, that way of thinking to really truly embed the, the student experience and to get people thinking across the board um, and I think for anyone who heard Brett's interview with myself and Matt this will be um, quite like it, it, it's great to hear that it's it's not just um, organizations such as NACADA this is actually taking place at institutions and for me Certainly, it's it's probably a little bit different coming from an Irish UK, um, you know, institutional system where you know none of our institutions, our largest institution, is say thirty thousand. It's a very different vibe, but it is really refreshing to hear, you know, that people in very senior positions put the student experience front and center. So, uh, for me, that that I like, I'm a big fan of uh, what you uh, what you're advocating for so and I think for students and I know we I definitely have heard from students who've listened and they have found it really refreshing to hear that it's not that they are advocated for at meetings because sometimes it's not evident to them because there's stuff that goes on and maybe in the background um, but it is it's great for them to, to hear that they, you know that it is happening and they are their experience is being advocated for. Yeah. It's, you know, I think it's important that, that we keep that at, at the front of, of our thinking, 
right? We're here to educate students. And, and so the voices of students uh, really need to be something that's heard. I think one of the things that is striking to me about Penn State is that students are actively involved in, in a lot of decision-making processes, right? So our faculty senate, for instance, has student members. They have student senators, right? And so that, you know, really ensures that the voice of students are part of the discussions and, and part of the you know, decision-making that lead to the policies around um, their experiences here at the university. Um, you know, again, it's a very big place and we have a wide range of students and a wide range of, you know, experiences that they've had and, and you know, finding it's, it, you have to continuously sort of think about how are you going to hear more voices? Um, you know, I think one of the, for me, one of the challenges that we consistently face is that, we know that student engagement, you know, the active involvement of students in things from the classroom to their involvement in advising to their involvement in, you know, service learning and their involvement in, in the community, it's going to help them to be more successful, right? The, the, their ability to feel that they belong, that they're connected, that they have a sense that, that they can thrive within the time that they're at the university um, really is a critical part of their ability to get to the finish line. Um, and so, you know, we see that and we know that that's a really important part, but there remain, you know, sections or segments of the student population that don't sort of engage in the ways that you would really like to see them engage. And I think that's, you know, again, one of the ongoing challenges in higher education is how do you really create um, the sense of inclusion, that that voices matter, that um, all students really should be involved to the, to the extent that they can. Um, I think it begins to highlight, you know, some of the challenges that our students face um, from the cost of higher education and, and their need then to be um, working that might take them away from some of these other opportunities. Um, you know, the continued challenges that some of our students face around um, housing or food insecurity, right? That there's any number of, of um, concerns that, that face our students. And, and I think what's important for us as an institution then is to think about how do we better recognize that? How do we better recognize that we can complicate those experiences if we have um, policies and procedures that are really not um, aimed at empowering the success of students, right? Um, you know, I think for many institutions, the policies that they have probably were formed in the 70s, if not earlier, um, in the 80s, right? And and were uh, really written and, and created at a time when higher education looked very different. And, and so as um, access to higher education in, in the United States and certainly other parts of the world has broadened, I think it's, it's really important that we think about what do we mean by that, right? What do we mean by um, those policies? What do we mean by our commitment to ensuring that the students that arrive are actually going to be able to, to graduate, you know? And so finding, finding where the institutional barriers lie is, is really, you know, you asked earlier, Colm, like, what, what do I do? You know, and I think a lot of conversations around how do we better identify the barriers that our students face and begin to uncover those to surface them and then to really begin to think about well how do we 
how do we do something that sort of lowers those barriers that are institutionally created so that our students are better able to move through the institution um, in a way that, you know, allows them to thrive and, and ultimately be successful. Yeah. And I think uh, just like you're saying, I mean, it's kind of maybe questioning and looking at the different policies, procedures, and can we update it? Can we change it? And I think one of the things um, you recently spoke to advisors about was uh, a change with the academic difficulty and recovery policy. So I think as it's written, the like the overarching goal of the academic warning uh, for students is to ensure that proactive outreach and support is provided to those students to better ensure that students are successful at Penn State. So can you talk about um, what kind of proactive outreach and support Penn State's doing uh, for students? Sure. Um, you know, I think, just as you said, uh, proactive outreach is a really important part. And it, and it comes back to that comment earlier, too. Um, you know, the students that are engaged, that are connecting, um, often are going to thrive. They have they have better ability to ask questions, better ability to build relationships that help them to navigate the the complexities of, of higher education today. Um, we've worked at Penn State to refashion how we support, how we um, sort of create a culture in which people recognize that the support of students early on is is a, an effective way to help them be more successful so you know policy has been rewritten or, or actually introduced um, you know prior to five six years ago the university did not have a formal policy on academic difficulty as such and and so we were actually in a situation where students who encountered difficulty were really left to their own devices as opposed to the university saying there is an expectation that advising units reach out, um, support those students, try to have students build a recovery plan, right? And, and really sort of talk through what are the challenges that you're facing? How are we going to sort of um, leverage resources across the university to, to, to help you? Um, some concrete ways that we've done that uh, we, we as an institution have gone through some fairly significant technology changes and, and six years ago or so the university embarked on decommissioning their, um, legacy home built, um, homegrown, um, student information system, introducing, you know, a, a purchase solution, but the advising community was going to lose some functionality that had been part of our, um, homegrown system. And that led us to um, purchasing Starfish, which we use here at Penn State. Um, and I think one of the unique things about that was that it really provided an opportunity for us to begin to think differently about how we do some of that outreach. So six years ago, for instance, the policy at the university around early progress reporting was only required for first-year students. So the only students in the classroom that could receive a progress report were those students that were a first-year student, right? So you might have a class with 50 second-year students and 10 first-year students. The 50 second-year students could be struggling. The first-years could be doing fine, but instructors had actually no physical way to issue a progress report and to activate advisors and others who are here to support them. And so, you know, when we purchase new technology that could enable progress reporting at any point in the semester, we really seized on that 
and work through Senate to change our policy to say that any student in danger of earning less than a C should receive a progress report. Right. And the earlier that we can do that, the more frequently we can do that, the more that we can activate the network of people that are here to support students, the more apt that we are to head off the challenges that, that students are facing. Right. And allow them to to grow, to learn, as opposed to just getting to that point where they have to drop the course because they're in danger of not earning a, a passing mark in that class. Right. So I think the ability to affect the changes that we want in terms of outcomes really relies on our ability to think holistically, right? Um, the policies, our technology, our people, right? We need to ensure that people recognize that they as individuals are really the critical piece in the puzzle. The more we can build relationships, the more that we can talk to students, I think the better we're going to serve them. And so, you know, a lot of these policies are just trying to create some sets of expectations and, and mechanisms for people to, you know, be there and be present in, in the um, experiences of our students. Um, other things that we're looking at, I think, are also around, you know, DFW rates and, and where and why those are happening. Um, there's a lot of issues around... Um, equitable outcomes and how do we get to a place where we're, we're actually achieving more equity in, in the outcomes that we have. You know, we're, we're really trying to look at data and understand um, what data might tell us about where those barriers and challenges face, and then really thinking about how do we activate or motivate people, our staff, our academic advisors, our, our faculty, to be more attuned to the challenges that the institution has created as barriers that need to be drawn down and, and work together to accomplish that. David, I suppose Matt read a very impressive bio for you, but that's not even all that you you do or you have done. And one of the things I know is that you are a global intercultural teaching fellow. So you're present with students in yet another way. Maybe you could tell me and our listeners a little bit about what that involved. Sure. Um, thank you, Colin. I, um, when I was prior to coming to Penn State, I worked at the University of Michigan, and um, my background is in history. So I studied history in, in Detroit, Michigan at Wayne State University, and then landed at the University of Michigan as an academic advisor after I finished my PhD. Um, and so was really fortunate to be there and, and to really work day-to-day -day as an academic advisor for, for an extended period of time. But I also was a lecturer in history and taught courses on U.S. foreign policy, uh, taught a course on the Vietnam War, and, and had the very good fortune to then be able to take students to Vietnam um, as part of that course and as part of the global um, intercultural experience program that, that the University of Michigan sponsored, um, which was really about how do we help um, students and, and others to continue to learn about how we interact with one another. How, how do we create inclusive um, environments? How do we open our minds to thinking, right? So we would, or I would take students to, to Vietnam ostensibly to sort of think about how the war was remembered there. Um, and, and so I think that was powerful in, in that it really provided students 
not only provided, but sort of forced them to think a little bit differently about what they had learned up to date about what the war, the, the American war in Vietnam was really all about um, and how it's remembered. Um, and, and how do you then sort of enter communities? How do you enter different communities in a way that you're there to listen? Um, you know, a lot of it, I think, had to do with how do you solve problems, right? We're not here to solve your problems, but we're here to think about what are those problems and can we provide insight and conversation with you to help you find solutions to, to challenges that you face. Um, I think some of that has helped me even as, as I've you know moved through my career. Um, you know, I think that I still distinctly remember an experience while we were in Vietnam and we were going to do something and, and several of the students came and sort of questioned why we were going to do that. Like, why are we going about it in that manner? And, and it was, I think, powerful because it really helped me to sort of open my eyes to like, people have different perceptions of what's happening, right? And we need to listen to one another to find the kinds of solutions that are going to be embraced by all of us, as opposed to somebody just simply saying, this is what we're going to do. Um, so, you know, I think that was, a, all of those were really powerful experiences. They were powerful for students, but I think they're also informative for us as individuals who then sort of continue in our professions and, and really help us to recognize what are we, who do we, who do we represent? Who do we try to, how are we trying to help people? How do we listen to one another? How do we make decisions, right? Decisions that I think ultimately are inclusive and allow for many voices to have been heard in that process towards towards a decision. Um, so that's something that, you know, is, is that I'm going to start doing here at Penn State again. So there's an upcoming program that I'll be um, doing some of that work of, of taking students to Vietnam in, in, in the near future. So looking forward to that. Great. I mean, yeah, I think certainly from my background, I know the power of international education and I know the way in which students getting an opportunity to go overseas to meet with other people and what they learn from that. And I suppose one of the, the aims that I see certainly in Ireland with the increase in the number of international students is internationalization at home so that we we look to utilize all of the the knowledge and gifts that our international students bring to our campuses and ensure that our uh, domestic students learn learn from them and um, that that is something I think that we could really look to to improve on certainly in in Ireland and the UK I, I don't know what it's like for for you guys stateside but I would love to see more done in terms of um, I guess empowering international students to to bring the gifts and and skills that they have and demonstrate those and share those with domestic students because sometimes I feel we do separate orientations and they they we all they we almost set them up in different camps and if they do get to mix and mingle it almost happens um you know d despite some sometimes university policies yeah absolutely right i mean i think even just do we as an institution do we as individuals at an institution take the time to stop and just sort of think about any and all of our students and what the experiences that they are having in and how do we sort of bring those voices together? How do we 
really create spaces where individuals are empowered to to share, to to be open with one another about those experiences, right? Um, you know, I've had a couple of my staff here in, in, at the Division of Undergraduate Studies mention to me that they had an advising session, met with a student, and then after the student left, they felt horrible, in, in fact, because they hadn't asked about that student's experiences. So this was an international student from China, right, um, several weeks ago as, as the coronavirus situations were really beginning to unfold and become more known, you know, do we take the moment to stop and ask, right? What What is your experience? What is your family's experience at home, right? How, how do we support you as you think about that, right? Um, you know, we live in an increasingly and global and interconnected world. And, and how do we, you know, recognize that and, and ensure that others see the value of that, right? That uh, the problems that this world faced are, are so complex and multi that we really need to have a way, range of perspective and, and input if we're ever going to find solutions that are, are meaningful and, and actually work towards, um, you know, the, the improvement of, of our world. And, 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 you know, and I think mm -hmm. it starts here at the universities, right? How do we foster mm -hmm. conversation? How do we ensure that, you know, this is a great gift that international students are bringing it to our to our communities, right? Their presence is something that we should better embrace and acknowledge as a real opportunity for others to learn and to grow and to um, interact with folks that have had different lived experiences, right? New knowledge mm -hmm. is created by bringing new voices and new ideas together, right? I mean, to me, that's the core of a university is how do you create new knowledge? And the only way that we're going to advance our understanding of the world is to recognize that many perspectives have to be brought to the table. And those lived experiences are real. Um, and students should feel empowered to share their experiences because that, again, is how we're all going to learn and to grow and to recognize what are the challenges that, that exist in our world. Because I think we as individuals take for granted Right. We, we have a set of lived experiences that look one way. And, and again, the assumptions and the biases then that we bring to different things can be challenged by creating the spaces where those other voices can share their lived experiences in a way that helps us to better understand what really is happening in our world today. Yeah, and sometimes I think it just comes down to perceptions, reality to people and kind of just taking that step back to know that there's multiple viewpoints and multiple experiences and it's not just yeah. your narrative and, and what you believe, you know, there's, there's a yeah. lot of other knowledge in this world. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, I think that's, that's the fascinating part of, of where we're at. Right. And we see sort of a, a tendency today to sort of narrow that, right. To say that there's just one way to look at things, but that that's certainly going to lead us to, more problems and more challenges than, than having a broader view of, of the world and, and being open to, to, to the voices and experiences that people bring to our conversations. You know, it's a, a particular challenge and I think it's going to continue to face us, you know, as we move forward in the next months and, and, and next year, I would suspect. So. 
I mean, I, I think we could continue this conversation for probably another hour if we had the, the time. You, uh, you're, you're a man of multitude experiences, incredible insights, and I want to just thank you for taking the time today to chat with us because it's been really interesting to hear what's going on at um, institutional levels. And I think for listeners, it's going to be really powerful to hear from you as to the changes um, that Penn State is making and continuing to to make and and the journey that you're on and, you know, journeys ebb and flow. But we want to thank you for for sharing with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I mean, change is hard, right? I mean, I think that's that's the underlying part of that. But I think at the same time, we have to continuously change to, to move forward and to grow. Um, and, and critical to that is then listening to folks and understanding, you know, what that concern is and how do we allay those concerns and really ensure that what we're trying to do is to create a better space for everybody, um, our advisors, our staff, um, our faculty, our students, so that the kind of outcomes that we hope for as an educational institution can be achieved at a more equitable and um, in a more equitable way. Um, So I appreciate the time that you've given for me to talk a little bit about the work that I'm doing. Um, And it certainly wouldn't be possible without the many people that I've interacted with and that work here at Penn State. So you know, I'm just one of, of many that are trying to move this stuff forward. So, And that's a great way to, to sum it up because um, when I was reading a, an article, your Penn State president, he was talking about technology, but I think this kind of goes with everything that you've been talking about. And he said, as an institution of higher education, if you're not innovating, you're left, you'll be left behind. And Penn State's continuing to take new directions and invest in technology to support faculty innovation and teaching and to create engaging, immersive experiences for our students. And so that kind of resonated with me and, you know, everything that you've been talking about kind of goes along with that. Technology is core, right? I mean, that's how we connect across a big space. Um, But at the end of the day, it's the person behind that technology that is so critical, right? We have to think about how do we make technology work for us and, and, and assist in bringing our students face to face with us. Because I think, again, it's through those relationships that we're going to best um, impact and shape um, the thinking and the views of our students in a way that um, allows them to thrive and to be successful. Yeah. I mean, I think for, for me, my takeaway, probably the, the, a, a real nugget is from you is just to take a moment and to listen. And if we can just do maybe those two simple things were a little bit further on the road to student success, a little bit further on the road to an equitable outcome. So I, I, that's, that's what I am going to take from, from today's conversation. So that's what I'm going to endeavor to, to look to, to bring to my work uh, in the future. Excellent. Well, as I said, I've enjoyed it. And I think what the two of you are doing is, is, is fun. It's, you know, it's a, good way to share across the community what what's happening um, really at, at that point of academic advising and how we're trying to contribute to to making um, higher education better for everybody so kudos to both of you thank you so much david yeah. 
Yep. And thanks again to David Smith. That was a wonderful interview. He was very open to everything that uh, all the questions that we had for him. So I really appreciate David for joining us for that interview. And again, thank you again for your understanding in um, when we recorded it and when we actually posted it. But also, we wanted to give a shout out to Rachel Mars. Uh, Rachel had posted on her social media. She uh, said, this podcast is giving some much needed perspective on advising. And thanks so much for taking time to make this. So good to hear other advisors' voices in this unique time. And so she was referencing uh, some of the past uh, COVID-19 specific episodes that, that we did over the last couple of weeks. And Rachel's actually someone that I have known since 2016. Uh, so I met Rachel at the Nakata Annual Conference in Atlanta. And um, we were talking a lot about social media because we both do some sort of social media for our students at our respective institutions. And till maybe like a year or so ago, then she found me on Facebook. And then we've been chatting ever since. And uh, she's such a great person, such a wealth of knowledge. And so inspiring and engaging with her students. And so we really appreciate your comments, Rachel, and look forward to chatting some more. Absolutely. Um, thanks very much, Rachel. We appreciate the the support. So following um, that interview with David, we have an interview with an academic from University College Dublin with Connor Buggy and Connor is somebody who I got to know whilst I was working at UCD and he is involved in various different aspects of of life on campus there but in this interview we touch on a lot of that but I suppose one of the areas that I chatted to Connor about was around the movement to online or remote learning and halfway through the semester and how he was managing that, how his institution was managing that and what the transition meant for in ter terms of learning outcomes, but also for the, the students who, you know, were having to, to make that transition. And he he's really, Connor is, very generous with his insights and um i think he he talks uh, a lot about the i suppose the, the differences in pedagogy and he also uh, offers kind of some insights into what's actually happening on campus uh at ucd and i think we'll let uh, connor speak for himself and hear from him right now <laughs> Connor is an assistant professor in occupational and environmental studies at the Center for Safety and Health at Work in the School of Public Health, Physiotherapy and Sports Science at University College Dublin. He holds a BA from Trinity College Dublin and a PhD from DCU and two postgrad teaching qualifications from UCD. Connor is the program director for the MSc in Occupational Safety and Health and the Professional Certificate in Environmental Management, and is also involved in the Master's in Public Health. Connor is also an adjunct at Trinity College Dublin for the Master's in Development Practice. He's actively involved in universal design of teaching and ensuring his students have an inclusive teaching and assessment experience. Connor is involved in research projects related to healthcare accessibility 
in and during emergency scenarios. And I'm sure that's something we'll talk about. And the impact of education and training as a mechanism to enhance occupational well-being, the evolution of continuous medical education's impact on global health-related phenomena, and the impact of occupational safety and health management practices in diverse professional cohorts. Connor, welcome to Adventures in Advising. Thank you for that very long introduction. <laughs> well, it, it's it's a testament to all of the things that, that you do. And I know that you aren't only involved in academia. You have a multitude of outside interests that you're also involved in. Where do you find the time? Uh, well, I do sleep on occasion. Um, so I used to, before I became an academic, I worked as a consultant and um, in project management and every single minute was billable. So you made yourself very efficient in order to make money. So um, I'm very good at managing my own time and making sure I can I can spend the required amount of time on different things. Plus, I'm very I'm very driven, as you can probably guess. You are, certainly, but with a real human side. I, I know from being a, a former colleague uh, of, of yours and, and being fortunate enough to, to call you a friend that I know that even though you are very driven, you are very interested in people and always interested in, in how people are doing. But one of the things I didn't know about you was that you're involved in research projects related to healthcare accessibility in and during emergency scenarios, which seems quite applicable to the COVID-19 situation yeah. that we all find ourselves in. Yeah, it's one of the things I teach um, as part of um, one of my modules, health and safety management. Um, but one of the reasons I ended up working, moving into health and safety um, was, in, during my consultancy years and then ending up in academia is that I was very interested in emergency management, disaster planning, things like that. Um, kind of, I've always had a morbid curiosity about how disasters unfold and how you could prevent them. Um, and yeah, some of the research that I've done, I um, had a student and he was a Fulbright scholar, actually, um, Henry and he was very interested in it as well and we did a project in um, Nepal on healthcare accessibility after the earthquake um, and how the, the rural people actually managed to gain access to healthcare and how the healthcare system began to reorganize itself um, so that's some of the research I've been doing with him and then very recently actually before COVID-19 kind of came into effect we actually had just done a review on um the ebola crisis in west africa and how social interactions were um disrupted and social traditions like family traditions were completely disrupted and looking at the impact of how the emergency healthcare disrupted all of that so we had literally just submitted that as a paper just before covid19 began so hopefully that paper will get published <laughs> very soon uh, it would be timely Indeed. yeah so that's so it's it's an area i'm interested in yeah yeah and i suppose you know looking at the the covid19 situation how has it impacted your institution and your work oh uh, well okay so my work um well we've i like 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 all academics across the country you know we're all pretty scrambling to to adjust how we teach how we manage our pastoral care of our students how we liaise with our own colleagues uh, working from home um i'm very fortunate in that i have been doing online teaching for about 7 years now so i know how to develop uh, modules into online modules how you do the assessment how you do the pastoral care how you communicate with the students so i'm quite quite fortunate in that regard 
Um, and I do actually have two, two of my traditional you know, classroom-based modules I'm actually having to convert right now to make sure that they can be still delivered effectively for the rest of the trimester. So that's taking up some of my time. Like all other institutes, UCD is effectively closed. Um, you know, we're having Skype calls. We're using Zoom to interact with each other. The students are all coming back, um, which is uh, effectively tomorrow. Um, and classes will resume and we're all, people are scrabbling to develop their their online learning resources um, so I've been doing a lot of Skype calls with my colleagues who know nothing about online teaching trying to tell them how they can convert assessment into being online assessment how they can communicate with students effectively how they can run an e-lecture live what are the best types of software to do for an e-lecture recording um, you know that type of thing how, and, and how to actually just make sure that the students learning experience isn't disrupted too significantly on the switch over from a normal classroom based to an online pedagogy, which is completely different. Um, you don't, mm -hmm. it's very difficult to do that switch over halfway through a module. Um, you know, it's, it's hard enough to design a module fully to be online, let alone switch it in the middle, you know. So, mm -hmm. so the last two weeks, I feel like I've been on Skype an awful lot and I've been using my Electra software an awful lot. Yeah, I can only imagine, but for people who maybe aren't that familiar with putting a course together, you know, it might sound to them like, you know, just going online. Well, all you got to do is upload the notes. But clearly that's not the case You're in talking about an entirely different pedagogy. Can you talk to me maybe about some of the differences and, and explain to listeners like what it actually involves? Wow. OK, so I have a course that's run. It's a blended learning online course, 90 percent online. And then I have a little bit of, you know, workshops where they come into UCD. Um, but that course took me two years to design before I even went live with it, you know. So and um, that's my professional certificate in environmental management. Um, and in order to do it, first of all, I had to identify the cohort of students that would be interested in taking it and taking the particular modules. I had to liaise with different schools in UCD who I knew would be interested in the modules as elective modules or even core modules, depending on the course that they were running. Um, and so I designed it from the ground up. And in terms of the pedagogy, well, I mean, the, the key thing is you've got to make sure that the students understand it's very self-directed. They have to become autonomous learners. So, yes, at the start of each of the modules, you have to hold their hand virtually online. Um, you've got to make sure that you are present for them online. You can't just go, oh, yeah, grand, it's all up on, it's all up on Brightspace now. I'll just sit back and let let it run you can't do that you have to be active you have to be engaged with the students you have to give them mechanisms to communicate with you and you have to give them sequences of learning it's not just here's the lecture notes and let's have a talk over of that i've met quite a few professors over the years in ucd who literally think that online teaching is sitting down and recording over a powerpoint and putting that on brightspace that is or the virtual learning environment, whatever one you're using. We used to use Blackboard before that came Moodle, you know, so, um, you know, and that's not online learning at all. So just to give you kind of a rundown of what a usual week in one of my modules is, the lectures are released on the Friday. Um, and what happens is they are given a, a summary document um, and the summary document outlines what their learning objectives are for the week ahead. Um, they're given specified learning activities to review before 
they watch the e-lecture and listen to the e-lecture. So these could be different links, different texts, different papers I want them to read as advanced learning before they watch the e-lecture. Then they watch the e-lecture and then they have post-specified learning activities for afterwards. Um, so that, you know, to build on the learning of the e-lecture. They then have a set of what I call the learning outcomes, what they should have achieved by the end of the week in terms of their learning, and also how that week's learning is linked directly to their assessment. So they have to see the clear links to the assessment process. So you have to time your assessment very, very crucially at different points along the module. Um, so that's the learning process, of specifically for them but i also have discussion forum i have just i have what i call my general discussion forum which is where they can put they can share material that they have read around the topic then i have my weekly specific discussion forum specifically for questions in relation to that week's learning um, and then i have another discussion forum specifically devoted to assessment so as they are progressing through their learning they can throw in queries about what particular assignment they're doing or what particular wiki they're designing by the end of the, the, the module. And each week, then it builds up on a week by week basis. I don't release all of the material for the whole module at, on day one. It's done on a week by week basis and it builds up so that by the end of the 12 weeks, there are 12 blocks of learning open across the whole of the module. So let's say somebody is busy and they, they miss a week. It doesn't mean that it disappears on them. They can go back and relearn and catch up. Um, so the sequence of learning is very crucial. But and you've also got to tell the students, you've got to remind them, you know, OK, every Friday you're going to have the vidcast from me explaining what you're learning this week and why the, what the e-lectures are going to contain and how it links to your assessment. So they have to see me as a vid in a video as well. They've got to see the human face. So and you've got to build up these blocks of learning across the module. And some students love it and some absolutely hate it. But I find the ones that hate it initially, they eventually get used to it. And then by the end of it, they can see the value of becoming an autonomous learner and becoming much more self-directed. It's um, you can't just you can't just slap it together. You actually have to really think about the sequence of learning. You've got to really think how the learning process links to the assessment process. And then you've also got to take into account, you could have international students, you could have students with uh, different uh, disabilities or, uh, you know, like visually impaired or audio, you know, um, uh, audially impaired uh, or people who might have dyslexia. So you've got to make sure that the learning materials you put up online are universally designed so that they can read everything, that if there's, you know, a vidcast, if there's a script to go along with it, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah so uh, you can see that it's it's a lot more than simply recording audio over a PowerPoint presentation <laughs> yeah. and putting it up online. Yeah. It's it's a it's immersive for both for the lecturer and, and for the student. And I mean, this is these are unprecedented times that we kind of find ourselves in. Everyone's been forced into this situation mm. due to the circumstances. I think it will undoubtedly be a difficult transition, I think, probably for academics and for students over the next couple of weeks to, to move from, you know, that traditional model to changing halfway through a semester. Are, are there anything that, you know, lecturers or staff can do to help students with that transition? Well, I think be understanding. That's the crucial thing. Um, yes, we and also ask the students to be understanding of us. And, you know, that's what I, one of the very first things I did was I actually put up an announcement in because I have two modules that I'm actually in the middle of converting as it is into more an online format. And one of the very first things I said was, 
I will do my best to make sure that the learning process is not disrupted too significantly. But please understand that a lot of us are doing this on the fly. We're having to convert things. So please understand things might not be timed exactly the same. It might be a little bit rough and ready, but we're doing our best. So we need to understand that students are also in stressful situations. And we need, so, you know, a lot of our international students have left the country, gone back to their home countries and won't be coming back. They won't be able to have that experience of learning in Ireland anymore, missing their friends. And um, so not only are their, their, their whole social circle has been disrupted, their social lives um, have been disrupted, their learning processes have been disrupted too. And um, so we need to be cognizant of that as well. And we need to be aware that our pastoral care has to change. I know loads of academics who, who hate responding to students on email and, and you know, won't pick up the phone to talk to a student, um, you know, in their little high up offices in the high building somewhere. They don't, you know, they don't even give office opening hours for when they're there. We have to be aware of our students are going through difficult times as well. So that's the first thing. We have to make sure we can adapt our pastoral care. Um, you know, I've done, um, I used to do a lot, I, you know, I do email announcements like everybody does. I do announcements on Brightspace. But one of the things I did last week was I did video um, announcements. I sat down with my camera and I spoke to the students and I said, look, this is what's happening. This is what I'm trying to do. Um, give me some time. I'm here on email. I'm here on the discussion forum. Anytime you need me over, you know, just, I'll get around to chatting to you when I can. Um, but I think just seeing the human face was a lot. I got a lot of emails back from the students saying, thanks very much from the video. It was much better than an email. Um, and I know people, I know academics are nervous about using some of the software and they're nervous about camera and they're kind of like going, oh, it's a permanent record of, you know, how I talk and versus, you know, our, the, the academics go, oh, I come alive in a classroom. Yeah, I come alive in a classroom too. But we have to, you know, just because you're being, you, you can't, Come, not come alive on a video as well yes yeah, a different environment but you can try you know you can you can try things and I think in a way the COVID-19 situation it's going to force people into attempting new things and changing their pedagogies a lot of academics are super comfortable with literally just going into a classroom teaching one hour, you know one or two hours and then walking out and then giving them an end of semester exam um we can't do that anymore um and I literally this last week, I have spent a lot of time on Skype calls talking to colleagues who that's the way they taught. That's the way they assessed. They never had to think about their assessment. They just went, ah, I'll do an end of semester exam. Um, and now they're suddenly realizing we're not going to have the exams anymore. We have to figure out how to do alternative assessments online. You've got to communicate via a virtual classroom. If you don't have time to record and edit an e-lecture, you're going to have to use the virtual classroom space. So do you have a mic? Do you have a headset? You know, are you prepared to do that? So um, we have a lot of nervous academics out there um, who are trying to figure this out. And, um, you know, we've got fantastic resources. There's loads of resources available out there to us. Um, and, you know, I'm sure all of our university teaching and learning teams are giving out guides. And, you know, this is how you record using over PowerPoint. And this is how you run a virtual classroom. And this is how you make sure you set your permissions so that the students can't move your slides on, <laughs> you know, things like that. Um, but so it's it's a it's a very challenging time. Not only are we being challenged to adapt our teaching, learn new things. Uh, E-learning might be comfortable for me, but I guarantee for most academics, they haven't. A lot of them don't have a clue about it or are super uncomfortable with it. Um, and we're also worried about what's going on. We're worried about our families. We're worried about using public transport. We're worried, you know, about our parents. We're worried about the healthcare system. We're worried about panic buying in shops. 
so it's a highly stressful situation. And I think one of the key things to remember is we all need to have empathy, Mm -hmm. be empathetic towards each other, towards our students, towards our colleagues, uh, towards our superiors, even because we don't know the level of pressure they're under to keep universities going and things like that. So look, I think if we all are a little bit kinder and a little bit more empathetic to each other, we should be able to get through this. Yeah, no, I think that's that's exactly it. I think you've summed it up really nicely. I, I had a couple of, when you were talking there, I was thinking there were probably three points that jumped out at, at me and, and one was around empathy, empathy and patience. I think that's what we we need as we kind of transition into the the new normal. Um, I also, I, I you, you're probably aware, not all listeners may be aware, I'm obviously a big proponent of video. I think we respond to faces, we respond to stories. So I really think that's really important in especially in uncertain times that that students get to see a face and that can help with the empathy because it's so it email can feel so impersonal so when they see a face when they can understand that you know you you too are stressed and may worried you you know it's new for you too i think that can really help and i do think students understand that it is an ever-evolving situation I, I certainly seen that in relation to maybe immigration. We don't have all the the answers for students. Things have, have changed and things have shifted. Um, I will say I think the Irish government have been v- very good in and the Department of Justice and our Irish National Immigration Service about trying to reassure students. But it, it takes time. We don't have all the answers. And I think acknowledging that to the students, you know, makes uh, makes a difference. And I suppose the, the, the final piece from what you were saying is, moving online it's a skill it's a new skill that we we have to learn it's a skill for academics and those putting together courses and it's going to be a skill that students will need to acquire as yeah. well to, to to learn so like any skill it takes it takes time some people will probably pick it up quicker than others but to to you know again lean into that empathy and and that patience and and you know hopefully we'll we'll all get there yeah, and it doesn't now, have to be perfect that's the other exactly. thing. It doesn't have to be perfect. I mean, if you're making an effort, your students will see that you're making an effort. So, for example, I have um, two of my modules. I have guest lecturers. They're professional people who come in to give very specific talks to my students. And, um, you know, so what, what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to go into UCD. They're going to come in and meet me in my office and I'm going to run the virtual classroom from my office. Um, they're going to sit down at my laptop first time they've never done it before in their lives but they're happy and i'm going to sit at the other side of the room so that if they have any technical glitches you know there will be social distancing <laughs> to make sure no contamination but you know we're gonna that's what we're gonna try and it, it, it hopefully it'll work and if it doesn't work we'll do a voiceover recording and release it to the students after you know and so you, there's ways around these things and the one thing i will say to any academics that are you know even students that are listening take a risk okay the one thing I've learned about online teaching is the only way you can perfect and refine your skills is by taking a risk and trying different things. What's the worst that can happen? You make a fool of yourself in front of your students. So bloody what? I mean, that's being authentic. That's being real. If you want your students to empathize with your situation, if you want your students to understand what life as an academic is and what you're going through, be a prat in front of them, you know, and, and if you're having a video call with them and your cat walks by, bring, pick, lift the cat up and show them, you know, that type of thing. It's, it's showing them we're human. We're not these perfect beings that sit in our offices just thinking about solving problems in the world. We're actually showing, we're actually 
taking action and doing things to, to change things for the better, even if it's just helping a student learn from their kitchen table in India because they've had to go home. You know, that's mm-hmm. that if, if we're if we can do that in this situation, we're achieving a lot. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. I think really sage advice there to faculty members and to students. Now, um, we've covered some a, a wealth of things there already. But before I, I let you go, one of the things I, I wanted to discuss was another project that you're involved in now, which is in relation to a call center that has been set up. And maybe you could tell me a little bit more uh, about that and, and what's involved. Sure. Yeah. Um, so in my school, so I'm in the School of Public Health in UCD and um, Professor Pat Wall and uh, Professor Mary Codd, um, they've been liaising with the health service um, executive and Pat's heavily involved with the World Health Organization. And, you know, the uh, the army cadets were dragooned in by the health safety, health and health service executive to um help with the call center for the COVID-19 tracing and you know they were doing a fantastic job but they were literally so over like overwhelmed with the amount of calls that needed to be made and how the contact tracing was needing to be done and so they asked our school in UCD could a call center be set up in UCD and could academics and you know any of our staff and um, even some of our volunteer uh, some of our, our postgraduate students that were still in the country um, would they who were involved in public health would they be able to get involved and undergo training to use the new software and when I mean new software I mean like less than a week old brand new software um, and um, so the call center was being set up in uh, in our in in, in UCD and um, we began the calls last Thursday so some of us we we were training we did some training um, and you know initially 40 of us more have joined and so what they're all we're all volunteering to do shifts on the call tracing so what we do is um the software is uh we get the information letting us know um if somebody has has been diagnosed as positive we get we call them and we let them know we talk about the uh self-isolation and symptoms and what the next steps are and 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 then we ask them to prepare a list of contacts of who they've been in close contact with um and then it's escalated on to the next call and then that call is where they gather the contacts and then the next set of calls are to those contacts where people are told that they have come in contact with an individual that nobody's identified in the process it's all mm-hmm. done anonymously and that they need to self-isolate and the contact tracing is really really crucial because the more people we can identify who've been in contact with a case and get those people to self-isolate it means we're able to hopefully contain it as much as possible. We're in what we call the the delay phase, really, of 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 this emergency. But the more people we can we can uh, test and uh, then find out who their contacts were, and get those people to self isolate and minimize contact, the, we're able to contain this as much as possible. And this was this has been done very successfully in Japan and in um, Singapore and in Hong Kong. And um, they did this contact trace right from the start and they have they were able to flatten the, the curve as such much more rapidly than any other country and so our government made the decision to do this earlier than other countries in Europe and I think they need they do need to be commended for it I mean I you know I'm not a huge fan of the 
previous government who are now our caretaker government. But in this regard, I think they're doing it right. We do have a doctor as our Taoiseach right now, which is probably an absolute bonus in a way. Um, and, you know, I think the way the HSE are operating and every people are pulling together and people are volunteering to help out in this, I think it's very, very important. Um, the the contact tracing process is is essentially crucial and there's more than more than one test more than one, uh, there's another another call center i believe has been set up as well um, in dcu um and i think you know we've got people volunteering to do shifts and to help out so we're doing three shifts a day um to do these calls and to try and get all the the contacts traced and also let people know that they have it and to give them the, the advice that they need to to um you know if their symptoms get worse what they need to do all that sort of stuff so the the, the we, we you know we got the support from the university management team uh, professor joe carty um who's the college principal of science He's been a big support to us, Joe, our, um, Joe and Mary and Pat and our uh, head of school, Catherine Blake. They've all been fantastic in organizing us and getting us all together. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think volunteering to, to do this, um, you know, it, well, one, it gets me out of the house for a little while <laughs> so I don't go too stir crazy. Um but I think I think we should all be trying to help out as much as we can in this situation um, in whatever way we can, you know, even if it's just making a cup of tea for an army cadet, you see who's out uh, setting up a, a makeshift hospital. Um, you know, I know the social distancing thing, but, you know, we, we can figure out ways around it. But that's if all of us can help out, we'll be able to get through this situation. And I, I think Ireland can be proud of what we've done so far. Um uh, I think UCD can be proud of, of their efforts. I mean, we've got the National Virology Reference Laboratory. They are literally like working so hard um, to get tests done. And um, I'm in the UCD choir. And I, 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 I uh, so I sing with some of the, the, the team in the National Virolo Virology Reference Lab. And I just want to give them a big shout out because they're just absolutely doing amazing work. Yeah, no, there's there's so many people across the board who are really going above and beyond. And look, I commend you and all the people who are volunteering and helping out in whatever way possible. And, you know, I, I think it's it, it's in we, we've seen a, a tremendous amount of spirit and togetherness in people trying to, to help out in, in what ways they can. And I want to thank you for coming on the, the show and to talk about, to give insights into what it means for academics to, to move a class online and also to offer insights into what's going on in terms of contact tracing, the steps uh, that that are involved. And I think it's been really insightful. I hope um, that I will have you back on again, Matt. I, I think next time, hopefully, Matt will be able to, to be involved in the interview and we can both interview you when this situation, you know, is, is hopefully been re resolved in, in a positive way and we can maybe look at the, the new normal and what it means for for academia in that context. But yeah. for today, yeah. uh, thank you very much, uh, Connor. I really, really appreciate it. Ah, you're welcome. And look after yourself. Stay safe. Stay safe. <laughs>so that was dr connor buggy offering some insights as an academic but also telling us what was going on with the call tracing center and i think hopefully 
advisors will find that useful. I think hearing some tips from academics can always help. And Matt, I think the uh, academics at your institution have offered advice and, and tips as well. Is that right? Yeah. So it's like with this prior interview is kind of going mid-semester transitioning to going online and so with us like we had we're on the quarter system so you know we had a little bit of time to change up our classes for spring quarter and transition them to the online virtual format at the very beginning of the term so but a lot of our faculty haven't taught online before so like uh, Dr. Vani Van Wart uh, he at Art Council San Bernardino he had some tips that that he sent to faculty and you know he was talking about how you know, online face-to-face classes have the similarities, but they also have their differences. But there are strengths to having uh, these classes online. And that says, you know, it allows that flexibility. It allows for customization with, with the instructor, allows for action learning, and also allows for like a mechanized rehearsal that is tightly aligned with the material and clearly supports the major testing or projects and provides immediate feedback that can be very popular with students. But then he also kind of chimed in in terms of like, well, there are still going to be those issues with with cheating, and you need to really address a lot of those um, when you have those online courses. But he was also saying like the very first like two to three weeks of the term are going to be like the most important, and the instructors have to be as proactive as possible. And then a lot of that has to do with making sure you are t- informing your students and your content them prior to your class with how things are going to run and how, what kind of technologies you're going to use and what are the, going to be the expectations of the instructor, but also for the students. So, you know, I think it, it's great tips and it's, you know, again, we're, we're kind of all learning this together. And I think as, as long as we're kind of taking this as a team effort, you know, we will we'll make, make it through this. Absolutely. And I really think that's a, a kind of a great compliment to that last interview. So thank you for um, sharing those with, with listeners and following up from the hearing from academics and, and faculty members, I thought it would be interesting to hear the student perspective. And so the next interview is with Vish Gain, and Vish is an international student at Dublin City University, so the university where I'm working. And Vish is an international student. He is from India, but he ha- is living in Dublin and has remained here during this COVID-19 period. And he had kind of shared some of um, his his thoughts online in terms of a, a vlog last week and I something I had seen. So I thought it, I, I would invite Vish to chat to us and to share his story, his experience, what it's like being a student having to make the transition and also I suppose a lot of my work with advising is with international students. So what it's like to to be an international student, to be thousands of miles from home, to be maybe different country, different continent. And Vish was kind enough to chat to me and offer his experiences. So let's hear his story now.
So today I am joined by Vish, who is a student at Dublin City University. He is studying the MA in Journalism, and he is also working as a student intern for the Irish Universities Association in the Digital Teaching and Learning Project. Vish, welcome to Adventures in Advising. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me. Delighted to to have you on. I, I thought it would be really interesting for listeners to hear the the student voice. I mean, right now we're obviously in the midst of COVID nineteen, and for for you, I suppose in particular, you're an international student who's studying here in in Ireland. You're you're based in Dublin, but for you, how, how are you finding things? Um, it's all right, I would say. Um, adapting to this whole new situation has been a little bit of a challenge. Um, but overall, my experience in Ireland till now has been wonderful. Um, I've, I've fit in so many new things that I've done in my life in just a span of six months that I wouldn't have done back home in like years. So um, it's been a very enriching experience in Ireland. The people here are warm and welcoming. Um, and I've been able to really... Um, step out of my comfort zone with most of the things that I've been doing here, both academically and personally. Uh, so I think I've had a very, very nice time in Ireland. But specifically with respect to this whole crisis at the moment, um, things are a little challenging. There's a lot of apprehension about what's next. Um, and there's also the whole logistical getting used to um, with respect to our classes, our coursework, and even working from home is something that since we're not and particularly used to doing this. Um, this is unprecedented and we're still trying to figure it out. So for me personally, it's both challenging, but I think what uh, defeats the challenge is the exciting part of the challenge. Well, that's interesting to to hear you say, and, and it is, it's change management. There's a huge amount to change. Can you talk to me, I suppose, a little bit about the experience of moving from learning, I suppose, in the, the classroom? And, and obviously, you know, you have a lot of familiarity with, um, you know, on, online tools, but the pedagogy on, in terms of learning online is going to be different from learning in the classroom. So how have you found that transition to online learning? Um, I would say the transition has been quite smooth in the sense that um, you're right in saying that I am quite comfortable with technology, but I would also say that most of my professors are quite comfortable with technology. So they've moved, they've made the shift very quickly. Um, and we've had quite a few changes in the way we learn. So it's not, since it's not a physical classroom anymore, where we have professors who prefer online classes where we look where we are on a video conference and we're just looking at each other. But we also have professors who send us um, PowerPoint presentations with audio. And I think that's also a very effective method to use. Um, and then we have professors who send us all the resources on our VLE, which is our virtual learning environment. In DCU, it's called Loop, but other universities would have their own versions. And I think the VLEs are the most important um, point of communication in these times where I think uh, pretty much all the professors have been using it much more uh, extensively than we were before. And it's uh, it's become the single point of communication for all of us uh, to learn online. So yeah, what I'm trying to say is all professors are using different methods, but uh, the most important thing is they are still available to us. We're still having our classes. It's different but I wouldn't say it's any less effective than having the classrooms in the physical uh, space. So I don't see any uh, much of a difference at the moment. 
Okay, well, that that's really good to hear that academically that transition has has been smooth. And I suppose then in terms of um, you talked about the availability of professors, and I think that highlights the connectedness. How, how are you finding, I suppose, not you know, being in a classroom with others and having to 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 restrict, you know, who who you see and and your movements. How how has that impacted on you? Oh well, that makes me a little emotional, to be honest. Especially because I was, it's just a one year course, my master's program, which means that I was um, supposed to end my classes sometime in April, and I had imagined my last few weeks in this course to be very different, where I'd be more closer to my friends in my class as well as my professors. And so to suddenly for everything to abruptly stop and for us to not be able to see each other anymore, both my classmates and my professors can be a little distressing. Um, And knowing that it's never going to come back for for an undergraduate student in their first or second years, it's easier because they know when this is all over, they're meeting again. But I have uh, friends who've gone back to their home countries and they're probably not going to come back because if the classes are online, they will finish their course and they'll be done with it and stay back in their countries, which means I might not get to see them uh, anytime soon. So it has been a little emotionally turbulent, I would say. Um, and uh, But at the same time, I, I do understand that it's, this is what needed to be done. And I am glad that we're making the most of what we have and still going on with the classes rather than halting everything, um, as some countries would have done at the moment. Yeah. And as you said, it is what had to be done. But I do think it is important to acknowledge that there is kind of hurt there, that there is a sense of loss. There's 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 grief in some ways for what you what you what you don't have. And as you said, you might not see those. And obviously there are people who are, you know, grieving much bigger losses in terms of loved ones. But um, for for you, it it isn't what you expect. And I do think it's understandable that there is a, a level of, of disappointment there. And I think for for listeners, they will understand and they, they will they will appreciate that. And, you know, you are have flown thousands of miles to a new country on a new continent and um you you were having this what what you've described as a wonderful experience and suddenly that uh, that is shattered um almost you know in an instant so it, i think it it i i can i can certainly under, understand the the kind of the emotion that that you're experiencing and um how, how have have there been you know how have you been dealing with with, with that emotion and have, has there been support uh, available to you um i there is support available definitely i haven't availed of any yet um, myself and that's just because um i believe individuals deal with um emotions differently so for me i would be more in control than i would than i than some of my friends would um, but yeah, there is there is uh, help available out there. For me, I just make sure I'm speaking to people more than I used to. Um, that means speaking to my parents as well. Uh, they're happy because I'm speaking to them more often now. I used to go sometimes days without speaking to them and they used to get annoyed. But it also means I'm speaking more with my housemates, spending more time um, just chatting with each other, keeping our spirits up, um, watching movies together, um, and I regularly, on House Party, there's an app called House Party. So I recently joined it. I wasn't aware of it previously. And uh, I've been keeping in touch with my classmates through that app. Um, but also friends home, back home in India, we're all just constantly trying to keep in touch through online services. 
and that's that's the only thing that keeps me going to be honest because uh, there's not much else i can do and i wouldn't want to just binge watch shows on netflix in my free time at this point um, i'd like to be in touch with everyone uh, in in this difficult time absolutely i think what i'm hearing there is is, is around connectedness uh, and i think that's exactly what this is all about it's about finding a way to connect and it sounds like that's exactly what you've done and you've used the tools um that are available to you um and I, i'm sure that definitely your family are undoubtedly pleased to to be hearing from from you more regularly and and that definitely is a pillar of support for you and and um, I suppose in in terms of then what what the 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 next steps. I know you were you were studying um, to journalism. Um, what was your aim to ultimately to to work in that area to be a journalist? Yes, that is correct. Yeah, and that you know in Ireland for for listeners there's a, a two-year stay back option for um, graduate students postgrads uh, when you graduate from a course in Ireland there's a two-year stay back option and uh, a lot of students avail of that and I suppose wh- what is what's your thinking right now Vish what, what is it that you would like to do next? Right um, so one of the reasons I came to Ireland is because of the fact that I could stay back for a while after I finished my studies I think that was my primary incentive Um, I also did apply to the UK, but I was aware that in the UK, the time period that you get after your course to stay back and search for a job for a temporary period is much shorter than it is in Ireland. Um, And that's why I chose Ireland. And that's why I believe a lot of international end up choosing Ireland over the UK, especially at times like this, um, when they're not making the best of decisions. Um, So I am a little apprehensive about what's going to happen next, because visa-wise, I know I won't have a problem. I will have the opportunities to stay back, but it does get difficult to stay back when you have to pay rent, but you don't have a job. And I know that's something that a lot of international students are concerned about. I am fortunate enough to have a job at the moment, but then again, you need to think in the long term. And uh, as someone who wants to get into journalism, um, I know that the field at the moment is going through a turbulent time. Um, It's a very important time, as I was saying a little earlier, it's a very important time to be a journalist um, because we need to make sure that the news out there is factually correct, is um, comprehensive and is um, uh, and making sure that it's it's worth uh, listening to or reading from the reader's perspective at, at this point in time. But at the same time, advertising revenues are low, which means that media companies won't be earning as much, which leads to a lot of layoffs in the the journalism market at the moment so that's that's something that's causing me uh, and other journalists and indeed other international students as well in their own respective fields uh, a lot of anxiety so uh, but i'm hoping for the best um yeah and are there i suppose in in what you mentioned in terms of those those connections and the online tools are there things that that you've been able to maybe use to um help allay some of those fears or, 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 or to connect with people who are in similar situations because we're definitely in a time of, of flux. Um, but I, I, I know that um, certainly the, the career service in DCU have, have begun a podcast, which I think is aimed at, at trying to allay some of those fears. And um, I, I suppose it, it is something that we as a sector probably need to consider and, and to look at is the, 
after you know the, the, what what comes next that yes there is a lot of um stress and anxiety and worry right now and it sounds like you know um that most institutions are doing a really good job of of putting um supports in place to help students but there is obviously understandably concerned about what comes next and what you're talking about and there will be a level of uncertainty uh, i suppose around that about how this all plays out in terms of the economy but it is something that we as a sector, I think, need to consider about how we support students when they're taking that next step, because it was it was always going to be a step into the unknown. When you leave college, when you leave full time education, for many people, they've been you know in full time education, possibly from the age of four, right the way through with, with very few breaks other than summers here and there. And, and then you're entering the workforce and that in itself is a transition. So. Yeah, um, I think you've raised uh, an interesting point there, Vishen. Not one that there is e- an easy answer to or even multiple easy answers to, but something for us all to, to consider and, and ponder um, in in this time. And um, for, for you now, um, you know, you have um, you, you have been using this time i suppose to to also share the the stories about of your own story but also your your housemates um maybe you could tell us a a little bit about that because this is a podcast about stories yeah um so thanks colin i know what you're referring to it's the article that i posted recently online it's uh, an article i wrote for the uh, digital teaching and learning project newsletter and it's essentially about, um, it's an interview feature of my housemates and how they've been spending their time living on campus during the lockdown. Uh, so essentially the whole um, deal with my housemates is, and that includes me, of course, is that since the whole lockdown has happened, we're not really, um, at, the whole campus is silent. It's like a ghost town at the moment because there are no classes going on. The library and everything else, which used to be full of people, is closed down and it just feels so different, um, especially since we've been living here for more than seven months now. But it just feels so different when we walk outside sometimes. Uh, so the way my housemates have been dealing with it is, I suppose, just the way most other students will have been dealing with it is to be more in touch with those around you. So they've also, they're all international students, my housemates, and they've been speaking to their parents more often. So I'm, I'm glad that there are a lot of parents who are happy at the moment. But uh, apart from that, we're also, they're also spending a lot of time with each other, going out for walks. Just next to DCU, there's Albert College Park, which is a beautiful park and it's a great place to um, go out walking in these times, uh, as long as you're keeping social distancing in mind. So yeah, we go out for walks, we watch movies together, we're constantly in touch with our classmates. Um, and uh, and yeah, there, there are, there are, there's a lot of and, uh, things to be worried about at the moment, which is why we need each other at this point in time. For instance, you mentioned the DCU career service, which is called the Intra Program. Um, and uh, it's been a very helpful program in, in the past years. And even for us this year, it's been quite helpful. But at the same time, a lot of our placements are now in limbo. Um, because we don't know what's going to happen in the in the job market. And this doesn't just apply to journalism. It, I'm sure it applies to other fields as well. So that's something that's been bothering both my housemates as well as my classmates that I speak to online um, as to what we're going to do if our placements that we have secured at the moment get cancelled. Um, or or if, if paid placements suddenly become unpaid placements, then how are we going to make do? Um, and how long can we sustain ourselves here? 
um, if we're not, uh, you know, getting a decently paid placement. So that's something that's on the mind of a lot of my housemates. And um, we're doing what we can to deal with it and um, to keep supporting each other and constant reassurances of the fact that things will get better and that um, and, and that this this whole crisis is affecting people, some people in much worse ways than it is for us. And so just, you know, being thankful of the fact that we're 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 still staying strong. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've got a very good perspective there. Um, and I do think for listeners, we'll we'll look to post the, the link in the show notes. I do think it is uh, your your piece is really lovely. It captures, I suppose, the, the essence of, of, of what it's like f- to be an international student and, and dealing with, with something unprecedented. Um, and you did a, a really lovely job. And I want to thank you for taking the time to speak to me today and to share your experiences. It is a, a time of massive uncertainty that there aren't a, a lot of answers. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, um, when when we a little bit further on when, we, when we're at a situation where we have more clarity um, and, and after you have graduated, maybe we'll have you back on the show and you can let us know, you know, how, how things are, are for you at that point. But um, for right now, thank you once again. We really appreciate you taking the time to chat to me today. Thanks, Colm. I'm very excited to meet you again. So really good to to hear from Vish and to to hear the the student experience. But moving from my current institution back to my previous institution, our final interview today is with my former boss, Ashling O'Grady. Ashling is head of the student advisory service at UCD. So she interviewed me. Uh, a few years ago and was my boss up until just about six months ago. And I wanted to talk to Ashling, I suppose, in terms of being the manager of the advisory service, what that experience is like, particularly now with managing COVID-19 and I suppose trying to look out for students, but also for the advisors themselves and Ashling shared her thoughts and experiences and told me, I suppose, how the student advisory service at UCD came about, how it was established, and maybe how it differs from advising models in other parts of the world. So let's hear from Ashling now. Ashling O'Grady, welcome to Adventures in Advising. It's great to have you on the podcast. And it's very exciting for me to be here. Um, now, listeners may not be aware, but um, you were my boss not all that long ago and a very good boss, I, I have to say. But um, it's incredible that it has been about, what, six six months now? Yeah, six months since you left us and we miss you still, Colin. We miss you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for the, the kind words. I appreciate that. Now, we are recording this in the midst of COVID-19. And obviously, as head of the student advisors at UCD, you have a pretty big role. Can can you talk to me a little bit about um, how, it, how it's impacted on life at UCD? And, and then maybe we can talk about how it's impacted on you and the advisors. Sure. Well, I think 
we can safe to say that the landscape has changed utterly and we're still finding our feet and I don't think it's actually settled down yet. Um, on the 18th of March, we moved to, on the 13th of March, we moved to online teaching. Um, we were lucky in that for UCD, we were on the spring break and field trip break, so the students weren't actually on campus. Um, and we moved to delivering all of our services remotely. And for the past week, everybody has been working from home, um, which has taken some adjustments. And many students are now having to learn in entirely new and different ways. So I think what we, it's safe to say is that the landscape has changed utterly. And we don't know, I don't know how it's going to pan out in the end. And we're every day we're working our way through to try and best meet the needs of the students to ensure that their education is impacted as little as possible and that they can continue on with their studies as much as they can. Mm-hmm. Indeed, I think that's, that's a strange world. Yeah, certainly. And I think that's what everyone is endeavoring to ensure that, you know, there is as, as little impact as possible, but on, inevitably there will be some. But for for you as as an advisor and, and the, the team of advisors that, that you manage, how has that transition to online advising been? We've all had to upskill ourselves technologically. Um, we're all using now Zoom in a huge amount of way. Um, a lot of our, in fact, all of our interactions with students are being done via Zoom. We're using email and we're reaching out. Um, we do have some students who are having issues with poor broadband because it's not universal coverage across the country, which is causing issues for them. Um, but all of my team are now up and running on Zoom. We have a weekly meeting where we meet up and then we meet for a coffee break every morning because we're all sitting alone in our houses or with loved ones. Um, so it's very good to get and have a chance to come and meet and have a work discussion. And we are going from Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting, discussing what's going on, trying to work out the best way forward. We're moving into an assessment period. So we're looking at that. There's huge anxiety out there. I'm sure we're not unique in that. Every, everybody, I think, is anxious. So it's trying to work through that. And we're also looking at online resources. Uh, some of our students prior to this, put together a list of reputable websites because there's a lot of information out there on the web that may not be the most reputable. Um, and it was very timely, so we've been able to send that out as a resource to all of our students and to staff. And we're trying to look at ways of reaching out to students and letting them know that we're here. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's interesting how quickly Zoom has become part of our world. I, I saw a stat today that said that back in December 2019, Zoom had about 10 million daily users. And the the stat for the end of March, the 31st of March, was Zoom had 200 million daily users. So you can see in, in the space of three months um, how how the, the world has changed and the other thing that, that you mentioned there that I think universities um, writ large are, are going to have to grapple with is those equitable questions about access and the fact that that some students are, are going to, to potentially be disadvantaged because they don't have access to broadband or, or maybe the same tools that uh, that others do. And I think that is something that the sector is going to have to have to look at and when it comes to exams and assignments and those are big questions and I, I certainly don't have the answers I don't know if anyone has the answers as yet but it is something that we are going to have to to look at because 
um, it, it really has highlighted some of the equity issues that that exist. Um, and I know as, as an advisor, um, that is something that's an area, obviously, that, that you deal with. Um, and this is an area that you have a lot of experience in because my understanding and having worked as an advisor at UCD, the advisors at UCD were the, the first group of um, advisors as as most people would know that term in Ireland. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Back in 2002, we the student advisors were set up as a six advisors across the university attached to particular programs um, as a point of contact for students, uh, a very human face of the support services that were available and people that were embedded into the programs and were part of the program structures. We've expanded and grown and we're now 15 advisors, um, again, across all of the programs. Um, as I was saying to some, as a student said to me, you'd need to be living under a stone not to know who your student advisor is in UCD, which I was delighted to hear. And the students do get in touch with us. And then we have some advisors who have responsibility for particular cohorts. We've recently appointed an advisor for postgraduate research students, which can be quite a lonely role when you're on occasion. And then we have um, another advisor for mature students. And then all of the other advisors are attached to programs. So the medical students would have a medicine advisor. And that person then knows that program really well and would have an understanding of the issues that students in that cohort may be facing. But I do agree the equity issue is something that this current crisis is highlighting for us. And in UCD, what we are doing is asking students to come up with the solutions and then looking to see if we can help them fund those solutions. So hotspots are being used, additional computers, but getting a computer or getting a laptop at the moment is quite difficult because everybody had to stock up with their home office gear but we just have to be flexible in this current circumstances and try and best meet the needs of the students. Well, I think that approach is really good that you're not only working with the students, but um, I suppose empowering them by by allowing them to come up with solutions and then working with them to, to try as best as possible to implement the those solutions. But I think it's really important, you know, that that students feel uh, a sense of empowerment and and that their voice is listened to now um as as much as ever i'm interested i suppose in um looking maybe at the development of of the student advisors um obviously the the number of advisors has you know more than doubled since the inception in 2002 but are there other areas that you have seen where there has been change or development since the advisors were initially established I think people and students, when I say people, students are much quicker to let people know when they're having issues. Um, You mentioned the word empower, and that actually is a principle that underlines the service that we deliver, is that the advisors empower students to meet the challenges that they're going to meet um, and to continue with their education. So we are all about supporting students um, and guiding them through the very complex and complicated landscape that there is at third level. As we develop more expertise in, in, in specific areas, the universities become quite large. And we did a, um, a student experience mapping project last year. Um, and the students who needed the most assistance were those in first year who had the least idea of understanding the landscape within the university. 
And that's where the student advisors can be there and can help them to point them in the right direction and to assist them and to give them a space where they can um, come back and, and review where they're at and, and the services that they need. So we would see ourselves very much as a support and as an empowering students to make those decisions because we all know that actually when you've got an issue, the place that you need to find the solution is within yourself. You always know the, your own solution. You may need help coming there, but ultimately you're the one that will come up with the solution. The advisors have evolved. Yeah, and, and, and I suppose the it's the embedded in the programme as well is really key. Um, for each of us, we get to know our own area. We understand the regulations. We know the staff. And there's a lot of cross-referral from academic staff through to, um, to students. Um, and then, again, for, for the student advisors to refer the, the students again to the academics and create that pathway. And I, I think, yeah, that that's really interesting to, to hear how how it has developed. And I suppose for for listeners um, who aren't that familiar maybe with with the Irish set setup um and and maybe more familiar with with North America or or and even if they don't live there I, I think all of us have uh, an idea of, of how the North American setup works are there differences that maybe you are aware of and obviously you might know the nuances but differences in the way in which advisors operate at UCD than advisors operate in maybe the North American setting I, somebody once used the analogy that the UCD student advisors are a bit like the GPs of advising. We're not specialists in any area, um, but we do have a very wide and broad generalist knowledge. So I think in America, there's a lot more people available to offer that advice. Um, and you have your academic advisors and your financial advisors. We, we do the general advising. So the student advisors in UCD would assist with the administration and the, and the delivery of financial aid for students in um, for socioeconomic disadvantaged students and for students who find themselves in emergency situations. We will be very involved in orientation and in the whole first year experience. And in fact, that was my first experience of the American system was through go going to the first year experience um, conferences. Um, and we would look to peer mentoring and then the staff student consultative forums, we work quite closely with our students' union. So I think we will be much more generalist and have that broad sweep. We also um, have developed a space where we are very much seen as the supports for students as they go through UCD processes. So things like fitness to continue and study, fitness to practice, student code violations, um, disciplinary and residences, <clears throat> the student advisors would not advocate for students, but would support them through the processes. And that's a really key part. The Irish system, from from my knowledge of it, um, is, is probably almost a, a middle ground. The Irish-UK system is maybe a, a middle ground between the, the North American system and the European system, where uh, in Europe, certainly, and uh, I know from, from speaking to our students who go on Erasmus, um, and the Erasmus program is like a, an inter-European study abroad for, for listeners who aren't familiar with Erasmus, but they tend to find that um, you're very much on your own in, in a European setting. They're, 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 
it's up to you to to really seek out any help and support and i think maybe our, it's a little bit of a middle ground for for us here in ireland where um there's certainly maybe some hand holding for first years but after that um we 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 do expect um the the second maybe the the second third and and fourth years to to be a little bit more independent would would you say that's something that you have seen yourself yeah i think very much so we do have an expectation that students will take responsibility for themselves but at the same time a realization that it can be very difficult to reach out for that help so we will be reaching out in a general way to the student body um, and there would be a lot of support structures that are available um, both academic and emotional um, and financial, but the students need to come to them themselves. And first year, there's a recognition, obviously, of the, the difficulties that there are in first year and of the huge change that it is, particularly from the Irish secondary system, which when, I, when we started, I, well, the vast majority of our students were school leavers. We're now up to almost 50% not being school leavers, being in Irish school leavers, some international students and those from different backgrounds. So the landscape is changing all the time and we're having to adapt the services that we deliver all the time to meet those needs of the students. Yeah, I think the the diversity um, uh, in terms of the student population in Ireland has been wonderful to see the increase in, in that diversity because I know certainly when I was in college and I looked around, everyone looked pretty much like me and that, that has changed and a lot of my work is obviously with international students, so it's been really great for me to to see that um, that change. And I, I suppose I'm wondering from from my own sense, um, and just to hear from you in terms of your experience, the that changing um, student population and the needs of international students. Um, what has that led? How has that, I suppose, changed things for advisors? Or are there differences? Do do international students have different needs? Well, you, I think you know how I feel on this. I, my belief is a student is a student is a student, and that we deal with a student who is a person who comes with issues and concerns that they may have, and we help whoever it is at that point to work out the solution to the concerns that they may have. Um, we keep notes of our interactions with students just so we can see trends, but we do never differentiate on any ground apart from the program that they're on. So the only criteria that we use for measuring is the program that a student is on, um, because every student is an individual and a person with issues and concerns that they have. Where they come from is not quite irrelevant, but is not the most important thing. It's the program that they're in and the issues that they face. I do think the the increasing globalization of education across the board is changing the landscape and we probably need to upskill ourselves and we have not reached anything close to perfection but we keep working on it and being aware of um, the differing uh, communication methods I suppose that people may have um, but it's a constant it's a constant learning curve and this is that's the great thing about education Young people come through and every three years is a whole new cohort. And what's gone on in the past is in history and this new cohort are where they are. And we have to learn to be flexible and adaptable and meet their needs. Yes, I think that's a really great way of putting it. And I would hope that that will lend itself to 
our higher ed sector being able to respond to what's going on now with with COVID-19. And I think there are probably learnings that we can all take from this kind of somewhat tragic situation, Um, but it it may change the way in which we approach different areas in in the future. I I, I think we, we, it will hopefully make the sector reassess what its priorities are and how it goes about business in certain ways, because I think it might allow us to to realize that technology can assist us in some ways. And that in turn would free us up to focus more on, you know, student issues so that we can spend more time on those emotional issues or those transition issues that students sometimes have. Absolutely. And we are learning to work in different ways. Um, If we can find a a space to create community online, though, I think that we're all facing social isolation, which is bringing up big issues. We have a number, quite a number, some couple of hundred students still living on campus who are having to be isolated. and, And the campus is relatively empty at the moment, like the streets around everywhere. Um, and we, then we have students who have gone home to their country of origin and students who've gone home to their country, their, their home down the country in Ireland. And all of these students need to be able to connect in a way as well, which is a difficulty that we have to have to meet. And then looking at orientation for next year, how is that going to look? When is it going to be? These are questions, as I say, the landscape hasn't settled yet. How long it will take? Who knows? Yeah, con- constantly in flux. I suppose as we as we move towards kind of wrapping up, I, I'm just interested in hearing how because advisors occupy kind of a, a unique space because they they deal um, they're 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 a, a trusted source for students and a trusted person, but you also have to deal with the bureaucracy and the administration within any large institution and so how do you um in manage that both as an as an advisor but as the manager of a team of advisors i I think that would be interesting for for listeners to to hear it can be quite a challenge but for me i started off as an advisor and it was just within the last four years that we have moved from having just a a network of advisors based across the university to coming together as a unit. Um, And now we have this hub and spoke um, uh, model where I'm at the centre and it's a really good line of communication. And it means that we can have a very visible seat at the top table where the decisions are being made. And then we can spread that message out across the campus Um, And we also have a really unique insight into the issues that are facing students because a student comes to a student advisor within their own context. They are not coming for academic advice or to the student desk to have a transcript or whatever it might be. They are actually coming with whatever their issue and concern is. So we can see the context of the changing issues that are coming up for the student body. And by taking a short note of each conversation, we get a picture of how university works for each student for students in each in particular programs when the pressure points are through the year what affects people at what times and that allows us then to develop programs that can look to addressing those issues as and when they come up thanks for for taking the time to to 
explain that. I think it will be really interesting for for listeners. Um, I want to thank you for for taking the time to join me today. I you, we've we've spoken about the changing landscape, and I would hope that maybe we could speak again uh, towards the end of 2020 when things ha- have hopefully settled and and we know where we are, and we can discuss maybe th- those changes that we referenced and and the way in which the sector you know might reflect on things. And and at that point, it might be great to to look to us to say okay we discussed this back at the beginning of april and and where are we now so um thank you once again ashling i really appreciate you taking the time to join me thanks a million tom that was great thank you very much yeah definitely great insight from the student perspective and hopefully we'll be able to get some more in upcoming episodes and it was nice to hear from your former boss because i know you've been talking about wanting to get an interview with her for a while now. So I'm glad that finally, that finally came together and, and, and it worked out. Absolutely. was delighted to, to have the opportunity to, to talk to her. Um, hopefully everyone listening has gotten a lot out of today's episode. I think four really interesting interviews, lots of different perspectives, lots of advice, lots of guidance, and I certainly know that from sitting in on these interviews, there are takeaways for me and that things that I will be looking to to bring into to my working life over the, the coming weeks. Um, Matt, thank you for, as always, um, you know, co-hosting with me and uh, for all the work that you do. And uh, just to all our listeners, we hope that you are staying safe and well and that, you know, you are managing the the change and transition um, yourself and that you are getting the, the support you need um, at, at this time. Um, and we know that it's, it's a tough situation for, for all of us, students, you, everyone. Um, so really make sure that you're taking care of yourselves as well. You're taking time for yourselves and trying to get through this. And there's a lot of resources that, that you can find. Hopefully you're able to look at some of those resources that we post in our show notes from the last episode. But, you know, we have more episodes to come. So hopefully part of your your relaxation is listening to our podcast. And we got plenty more episodes that will be coming out in the near future. So stay tuned.